The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg UK Politics podcast, but now you can hear the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? Hello, welcome to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We're in Liverpool at the last day of Labour Party conference. And it's horrible weather, Caroline. Terrible weather, but it's still very busy, I would say. Yes, we're going to look back over the last few days, but also in particular over Keir Starmer's speech, his pledge to get Britain's future back. I mean, there are union jacks almost everywhere in this conference hall. Um, Starmer's speech widely seen as having hit the right note, in my view, he gave a coherent narrative he gave a message of change I think it was quite a vision and also to my British mind he did thread quite a credible um British story, it did seem authentic. You were in the room, Lizzie. I was. I think I was the last person to be let into the room. They were shutting the doors right behind me, but I felt like history was happening, so I needed to get in there. Look, I was sat amongst the unions and they were a bit sceptical about parts. They didn't want to join every standing ovation, but I have to say, this was more charisma than I've ever seen from Keir Starmer. I was speaking to an American colleague at Bloomberg who put it into perspective for me. He said, that was no Obama. It was no Clinton. It's not even Tony Blair. But from my eyes, this is the beginning of the election campaign. It's better than we've seen from Starmer. It's better than we saw from Sunak last week in Manchester. Yes, do you think? And Starmer wasn't going to go from zero to 100 overnight. Maybe it'll build and build. But there were lags between things that he said and the laughter it just was not as bad as when Sunak would um, say something like uh, you know we're the party of change or we're the ones to bring the long term uh, change for the UK or uh, ra- ra- going against 30 years of politics when they'd been in for 13 years already yes. and the audience was kind of saying what? It was very confused. But I have to say that moment when the heckler came in with the glitter and there's an amazing photo of it. I don't know if you've seen it, but the, uh, it looks like he's casting a spell over Starmer. That really set it off because it I was is. saying in the audience, you know, take his jacket off, roll his sleeves up. And someone must have said it in his ear. I think the woman who took his jacket off told him to do that. And from that moment on, it was like he was in his stride. Uh, the drama of that, if you were in the room, you had the audience so worried that it could have been 
you know, something life-threatening. And then the audience was relieved, and then it was jubilant. And as we were walking out of the hall, yeah. you know, I was behind Jess Phillips. It was absolutely just the, the vibe was like yes they've got this 20 point lead but you felt like they're not just defending it it was only going to grow yeah uh, central I think to, to Keir Starmer's speech the cost of living heating I think that did really hit home and obviously the voter friendly pledges for home building but on the point of uh, the glitter protest I want you to have a listen to it uh, you've heard the description from Lizzie here's what it sounded like oh, thank you Thank you, Conference. Thank you, Conference. True democracy is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. We demand a people's house. We demand a people's house. We are in crisis. We are in crisis. The whole future is If he thinks that bothers me, he doesn't know me. Protest or power, that's why we changed our party conference. That's why we changed our party. Thank you. So, one commentator said to me about that moment that it allowed Keir Starmer to loosen up, to relax, to make that point we are different to the previous uh, leadership under Jeremy Corbyn, under the far left. Um, and you know, he allowed him both to turn the page, but also to kind of give a warning to the party in the room that this unity that, that the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has managed to gather, it's got to stay in place. There has to be a unified, determined sort of um, focus on actually getting elected, protest or power. That's the choice. So I, I do think that was a very significant moment. And uh, yeah, I think some of the... I was surprised that some of the Labour commenters thought that this actually helped Starmer to, to deliver better because in a way, as you say, he's not the magnet, most magnetic of politicians but that this was really the key speech, I think, for his political career so far, surely and he did very, very well. Well, hecklers are always a test of the confidence mm. of a leader and how quickly you can snap back into your confidence and uh, you just had a moment where it, it looked on his face as if he was fearing for his life. Then you kind of wondered whether, as he went on to talk about his working class roots, he was going to knock him out. And then there was a bit of an eye roll about the security. Yeah, the security did take quite a long time. I think I was struck by that, watching it, how, how long it took them to drag off the protester. I was pretty moved by when his wife came on at the end, because we can reflect on mm. the role of wives in the leader's speeches. Of course, Rishi Sunak's wife opened for him, and there was a, that was kind of missing before Keir Starmer's speech. He was, you were wondering... Well, you just he had a pretty standard opening, Keir yes. Starmer. But then Keir Starmer's wife came on at the end of his speech. They had, um, what do you call it, an encore? Yes, uh, for the a applause. little hug together and she was pictured, yeah. But reflecting on that, can you imagine? She must have thought that her husband, something really yes. terrible could have happened to moment, him. And it's it? mixed with the emotion that that was the best speech he's ever delivered. Yeah. Look, I think the other points, though, to make are that... We can't underestimate how much the election is going to be fought on the economy and how big a pledge this one and a half million homes is and that even this could signal quite significant trouble for the Conservative Party because it was even praised by the free market Adam Smith Institute, which I think is really quite something. So I want you to listen to a little bit of the flavour of Keir Starmer's speech you know, when he talked about kind of bulldozing and rebuilding. Have a listen. 
What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. Wounds do heal. And ultimately, that project, their project, will crash against the spirit of working people in this country. And they are the source of my hope. Give them the government they deserve. Turn our backs on never-ending Tory decline with a decade of national renewal. That, to me, was a pitch for a two-term Labour government. That is really ambitious. And as I've said before, that's exactly what Keir Starmer's telling his team to write policy for, a two-term government. But this appeal to the Conservatives was really explicit. Voters who are fed up with uh, the leaders that they've had, who are traditional Tories, uh, but want an alternative. Because, frankly, they're the only path Keir Starmer's got to number 10. Mm. And there was an interesting part of that which is uh, building on the by-election victory in Scotland Mm. and appealing to the unionists in the Conservative Party as Labour being the only hope to protect against Scottish independence and you mentioned the flags everywhere there was a clearly patriotic theme throughout the speech and that moment that really got it for me um, where people were looking around at each other in the room was just towards the end when he said about being working class, growing up working class, uh, and I'm not going to be able to quote directly Caroline, but it was... Uh, aspiration. Exactly, it was aspiration, but he didn't use the word aspiration, yes. which is the same message that Rishi Sunak was trying to deliver, but but Starmer did it through showing, not telling. He showed uh, that he had the empathy with people uh, by saying about... You know, when in the cost of living crisis, when people have to think twice about having that treat in the supermarket. And for me, this was also an appeal to conservative voters because it was saying he started out working class. He is where he is now and it's okay to be middle class and he can still be welcome in the Labour Party. Yes. And I think that having said that, you know, detractors might say he had to use his sister really as more of an example of that than himself, because obviously he's a prosecutor, a lawyer turned politician. So, uh, you know, um, does he still have that kind of, uh, yeah, one would probably say middle class. I think this this also took my uh, caught my attention um the language of appealing to those conservative voters it was it was very ordinary language um and i think that that is very important and also a distinction i think with rishi sunak's speech i haven't done the analysis of of the wording of 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 speech by speech what they were like but this very day-to-day language if you look in horror at the descent of your party into the murky waters of populism and conspiracy there is a party for you this Labour Party is what Starmer was talking about so that sort of positioning for very broad appeal and a direct calling out or or, um, you know offer to maybe what we might call soft toys soft blues yeah the whole feel of this conference has been serious and professional and they've Mm. tried to contrast themselves with the as they would frame it silliness of the Tory conference and that reference to conspiracy is is thinking about the 15 minute cities and all of the things that came up in the fringes at Conservative Party conference and it speaks to overall you've had in the fringes um, and in the main main stage everybody the front benches kind of singing from the same hymn sheet yes it's 
pretty amazing that Starmer's managed to get that unity in the party, but it just seems they're all so... They can smell the election victory. Yes, but I do think that adding to that seriousness was obviously the attack on Israel that happened over the weekend and that had to make us and surely the Labour Party and everybody totally rethink what this conference in Liverpool was going to look like on Monday morning um, because of, of the death, the bloodshed and the response that the Labour Party needed to give to that. And so in a way, any of those silly fringe stories for the Labour Party actually had been um, tamped down in a way because there was so much focus on Israel, on what Starmer said about it, what Sunak said about it. But again, that was an amazing moment in the speech where there was this standing ovation for his claim to have ripped anti-Semitism out by the roots Mm. because it underscored Starmer's achievement of being so, as he would say, ruthless on that wing of the party, which frames him positively to deal with the situation that's happening um, the tragedy that's happening in Israel yeah and in fact I was actually surprised after his statement that he put it so high in his own speech at conference I think that really shows the measure of how important it is to him to get that message across I think to voters you've got to remember this speech was televised across the UK and so uh, that the Jewish community could see that so high in the speech I think was really uh, quite key I wasn't surprised at all because he's someone who's trying to present himself as a prime minister in waiting mm. and the international element of that's so important okay have a listen to then exactly what Keir Starmer had to say on Israel I am shocked and appalled by the events in Israel I utterly condemn the senseless murder of men women and children including British citizens in cold blood by the terrorists of Hamas. This party believes in the two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside a safe and secure Israel. But this action by Hamas does nothing for Palestinians and Israel must always have the right to defend her people. So, Keir Starmer then talking about Israel. Um, I think, you know, and it's perhaps for further down the line, the there may be more challenge to the Labour Party on this significant geopolitical issue. You know, at the moment, very unified on their view on Israel. If the bloodshed worsens or there is a wider conflict, I think that will become, again, a big challenge, not just for the Labour Party, but for the Conservatives and and many other supporters of Israel. Totally agree. But you can imagine, well, can you imagine, if Starmer had sounded any different from the party line, by which I mean the what? Sunak was saying, what Mm. Cleverly was saying, what other European leaders were saying, what America was saying on this. If he'd sounded anything like Jeremy Corbyn would have done or what Jeremy Corbyn was saying on Twitter, that that would have been a disaster, that speech. Absolutely. On a couple of policy points, though, I do want to mention that, um, and you were talking about this, that there was no extra information about how quickly or exactly how the Labour Party is going to deliver economic growth to Britain. Point number one. Point number two, great British power about which uh, the Labour leader made um, you know, quite a few references, this plan for a publicly owned clean energy company. So on the energy transition challenge for Britain, again, not very much detail. And also on the one and a half million homes to be built, it's basically the same 
pledge as the Conservative Party has to build 300,000 homes a year. And there isn't really any understanding about how you're going to bulldoze through the planning regulation in order to deliver that. So there's still a few questions, I'd say, policy-wise. I know, I have to say I'm gobsmacked. I'm frustrated as a journalist that they won't give us any detail, but you can understand it when you're 15 months or so out for a general election. And what I'm really gobsmacked about is that business seems to have drunk the Kool-Aid without the detail because business seems to be very much on their side uh, you know when you speak to business leaders here mm. Rachel Reeves having the backing of Mark Carney the former Bank of England governor who I should say again is the chair of Bloomberg LP the parent company of Bloomberg News they seem to be satisfied with just having the right tone and the fact that Labour's promising stability uh, it, it seems obvious to me that business thinks there's a new party of business. Yes, that's not a bad reading of it. Uh, but maybe, I suppose, the, the flip side is that there is still time. Look, I want to bring in our excellent producer, television and radio producer, James Walcock, to this conversation. Why? Because, Lizzie, when you and I are fast asleep and having to get up very, very early to broadcast, James Walcock has been around the floor to all sorts of events and talking to lots of people. So I I wanted to give you a little moment in the spotlight, James, to tell us about who you've been meeting. This podcast, we just need to give him his due. This podcast would not happen without James Walcock. Anyone who's a loyal listener. Sure. <laughs> he's the mastermind of it, but he's also awake 24-7 when it comes to party conferences. What did you find out last night? Thank you both for such a lovely introduction. While you both were sleeping and talking about this polite, business-friendly conference, we were seeing all these business voices. I saw tech giants, big carbon capture, net zero speakers. Fascinating. Some of the Labour chief economists who come from BlackRock, that financial movement in, all spill a spring in their step. Not saying they're going to win yet, but this idea of being very willing to listen to business and business being willing to give them a lot of leeway in what they said and push them out sort of while the booze is flowing to try and get a bit more. Now, you were missing out though, Lizzie and Caroline. You missed out on Lisa Nandy's DJ sets. Oh my God, what did she play? What's her genre? I mean, D-Ream did feature on a near endless repeat (laughs) list. Uh, She was DJing last night. And when we talk about Cool Britannia, it's worth saying the one person who I really tried to talk to but I couldn't meet is uh, someone I once interviewed who is the former violinist of Clean Bandit, uh, who is now Rachel Reeves' financial advisor. And is in her team, yes. And so, just goes to check. He um, moved for the Treasury and now works for Rachel Reeves. Um, but when we talk about this sort of big sort of push here, the other thing we haven't talked about is the diplomats who've mm-hmm. been here. The Americans, the EU ambassador for here on the Sunday nights, and they also are shifting to sort of see Labour as a potential business partner. I agree with that. I was at a, I hosted a panel event yesterday on trade and Brexit with Nick Thomas Simmons, who's a minister, shadow minister without portfolio, but kind of handling Brexit for Labour and also Gareth Thomas who's Minister for Trade Mm. and in the audience I was speaking to one of those diplomats afterwards and it's funny isn't it that they're just flies on the wall to all of this UK politics. And that also Brexit uh, was a line literally just a line in Keir Starmer's speech you know and he talked very much about how Labour is the positioning itself as the healers we are the healers, we are the modernisers we are the builders you know what is that 
that reference of healing all about surely it is about Brexit and they're listening to this tone because of course Keir Starmer has indicated that he wants a closer relationship with the EU if not to, the, to join the customs rejoin the customs union but he wants this renegotiation in 2025 you have to ask whether even if the tone is better the EU's going to budge at all it's funny you talk about tone because on the fringe events people occasionally say things or show a bit of personality that you don't see on the main stage I snuck into a Q&A with Rachel Reeves and everyone's house miss but I didn't believe it until I saw it she's really funny off like off the interviews what did you say to me last night about her sense of humour I like it's very like bullshit it's very sardonic at one point she said to the audience stop laughing I'm supposed to be serious like (laughs) she sort of talked about how she's aware saying that she's from the Bank of England lends her credibility yes that and chess she's aware of it and she sort of uses that signal but also that she's known uh, to her daughter as sort of the person who helps with the floods because that's what she was doing as a local MP when her kids were sort of younger um, but also she's not exactly looking forward to moving into Downing Street because she doesn't want her kids to get any ideas about pets with Larry the cat <laughs> Well, the other point, though, to make about chess, as one wag was saying to me, it is a way of telling the audience, I, I'm clever, I can think ahead. Strategically. Just by use, yes, strategically think. But that kind of you know, get-to-know-you event, mm. that kind of very soft Q&A, I did not find a single one of those at the Conservative conference. And it speaks to that kind of mood of this Labour conference. People are very willing to try and get to know this potential administration. And they're willing to give it quite a lot of leeway in lieu of policy detail because they sense some sort of weight in the polls, some sort of Mm. sense that maybe a shifting. Was it open to the public? Uh, You had to have an invite. Okay. Well, on that point, you mentioned Cool Britannia. Of course, this is referring to Tony Blair, to Peter Mandelson, to the 1997 election victory, the landslide that was one that I remember really well because I was at university and I recall voting, uh, won't say who for, voting and there were queues around the block of, of students um, you know who, who wanted to vote and, and did in large numbers vote for the Labour Party at that point and so catching up with Lord Mandelson now a Labour peer was also very interesting he talked about Keir Starmer being and I said what about charisma he said it's not a moment for charisma now in UK politics, given all of the uncertainty that we've had, the chopping and changing of prime ministers. It's actually about having a man with a plan. So this is Lord Mandelson's assessment of Keir Starmer, the Labour Party right now, and what they could do for workers. Working people in Britain have seen a stagnation in real wage growth uh, for very many years. Obviously, uh, what we've seen in recent years has accentuated what has been a longer-term trend. But that's why they want the economy not just to grow, but they also want the cake divided up a a bit more fairly. And who can blame them? We need to spread prosperity around the country. London and the South East, it's easy to see how that part of the country will grow. It's like a sort of city-state within a, a country. But that isn't going to serve the needs of the people as a whole. And therefore, to come to Keir Starmer and Labour's um, ideas, they've got a growth mission, uh, which is essentially about launching a massive programme of rebuilding. How, though, does a future Labour government deliver what other governments have not been able to do? I mean, if you look at private investment, look at our waterways. Those are privately held water companies 
government has really struggled and regulators have really struggled to hold those businesses to account. Same with the rail franchises and a number of other sort of what have been could be called public private or private um, ownership of public assets in the UK. That's, well, that's a real issue. No, it's a very big issue and I'm not going to let the management off the hook, either of the water companies uh, or the railway companies. Uh, I think they have fallen below the standards uh, of behaviour, the competence uh, that people reasonably expected from them. But they are not the only ones at fault. I'm not sure that the regulators have followed uh, consistent policies. I'm not sure that ministers have created the political environment in which regulators can not just you know, protect consumers in the short term, but enable companies uh, to obtain the scope they need in order to invest for the long term. There's a balance to be struck, in other words, between consumption and investment, uh, and I don't think we've struck that balance correctly uh, in the last five, seven years. How much do you think that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have managed to convince investors to put money into the UK? That is the central challenge to Britain in order to grow the economy. Well, confidence and investment has taken a huge hit during the last five, seven years. And we know why that is. Political instability, reckless economic uh, decisions, um, a succession of prime ministers. You don't know where you are from one day to the next. Ministers in charge of departments and pursuing policies literally, in most many cases, for less than a year at a time. I mean, what are international investors meant to make of that? And they say, look, you know, Britain's got to get its act together. We need political stability. We know where the, we need to know where this country is going. Mm. There has to be some continuity if we're going to take seriously uh, Britain again as an investment uh, destination. Keir Starmer, you talked about him being rather ruthless, but having the moral conviction to change the country. Does that, though? get over the charisma issue. Does Keir Starmer have the charisma to win over voters and even to deliver the next Labour victory? He's got a 20-point lead in the polls. I mean, look, that's not going to be permanent. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of soft support uh, in that poll lead. But, you know, charisma is not really the fuel that we need at the moment. You know, we've had plenty of performative circus-like politics. Uh, over the last five years, from Johnson, from Liz Truss. Um, I, don't really, I don't think the British public want to see any more of that, and I don't think investors need it. What we need is a Prime Minister who is a, who's a man with a plan, you know, who has a set of clear goals or missions. In Keir Starmer's case, it's to restart the economy, it's to unlock new sources of cheaper renewable energy, it's to get the National Health Service back on its feet and reformed, unlocking educational opportunities for people in the uh, country and empowering communities to fight crime. Now, you know, we can't do everything all at once. And I think what Starmer is doing is saying, right, he's going to galvanise government and the country to get behind five quite distinct missions, each with their own parameters, each with their own plan, is the right thing to do. I think it will give people a sense of uh, confidence and faith that we have a government who knows who know what they're doing, you know, rather than the merry-go-round that we've had to put up with for the last five, seven years. 
So that was Lord Mandelson then um, giving us a view. Of course, he also has deep roots now. So many years after he was, uh, you know, in government directly, he has deep roots in business and investing. And so hearing him make the case for Britain as an investment destination, to me also felt like a very post-Brexit conversation never mentioning the word Brexit but the realisation now what are we, seven, eight years after that that referendum that the UK must be competitive and competitive in a completely new way in order to deal with, you know, being adrift from the EU, not, not quite so closely related, you know, versus these massive blocks of the EU, China the US with all of its money for rebuilding, I thought that was a very interesting message. Yeah, don't forget he's the former EU Trade Commissioner yes. and he went for the top job at the WTO the World Trade Organization as Director General didn't get it, however he's very interested in trade but a question that I raised on that panel about trade and Brexit was whether, when they're after this foreign an investment they'll put those company bosses off with their non-dom changes abolishing the non-dom regime and i think that's a question that labor's struggling to answer also want to turn our attention then to how all of this is being felt or perhaps will be felt outside of the bubble of liverpool what about the voters out there we also spoke of course today to patrick english who is the associate director at yougov about how keir starmer's speech and the policies might land with potential voters I certainly think that there were two contrasting moves at the party conferences. The Labour Party conference feels quite upbeat, but cautious. You know, you go around and people are engaging a lot in the ideas of, OK, we're 20 points ahead, but how do we preserve that rather than celebrating too much now? The Conservative Party conference, it was kind of split down the middle, really. It felt like there was a lot of people who were obviously quite concerned about the polling lead, but believed that Rishi Sunak was on the right track. He had the plan, he had the vision to carry things forward. So they seemed up for the fight as well. And then you had other parts of the Conservative Party who were, let's say, making their leadership pitches. And that was quite interesting to follow as well. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of Keir Starmer's speech and the sorts of policy that he was talking about, the tone of what he said to conference yesterday? So I think it was a good speech and I think you can sort of look around uh, all commentators and acknowledge that there was a lot in there that appealed to a lot of different sections of the electorate. Uh, so one of the big things that voters always tell us that they're concerned about right now is the cost of living crisis and he spent a long time talking about that and addressing it, which I think was in a bit of contrast to Rishi Sunak, who prefers to talk about inflation as the key to sorting that issue out. Keir Starmer was talking about things like GDP, investment, a long-term decade of renewal as a way of lifting people out of the cost of living crisis. But certainly he focuses a lot more on it and certainly that I think would be more in tune with what the British public want to hear right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what struck me in that speech, the moment where he talked about taking something from a supermarket shelf and having to put it back again mm. because it was you know too expensive or, yeah, and that people wanted you know the basics to be able to eat but also go on holiday. Anyway, that Mm, that yeah. struck me. Um, how about the housing pledge? 1.5 million homes, affordable homes, new towns. How popular is that, obviously, given that we have a huge housing shortage in the UK? Yes, exactly. So whenever we poll on housing, we tend to find two things. One, people tend to be in favour of new housing developments, but as soon as you suggest that it might be around the corner from them, that support tends to drop quite a lot. However, we did some snap polling on the specific policies that Keir Starmer put forward yesterday. And what we found is that the British public are in support of this idea of new towns. That was 53 to 28. And that included a lot of Conservative Party voters as well, which is going to be crucial for Labour if they're going to overturn this huge majority that Boris Johnson put on. And then similarly, in terms of building on bits of the Greenbelt, we found 50% of the public in favour of that and 33% opposed. So it went down quite well with the British public, we think. What do you think then about 
the odds of the next election when might that happen because you know we're talking about policies there is a feeling perhaps here at conference that the Labour Party has time to drill down to offer more detail on mm. policy how much time might they have yes I think that's the the, the question on everybody's lips right yes. now isn't it when are we going into election season well look I think both parties have been in campaign mode and been in battle mode now for quite some time and they're moving pieces around the chessboard on a national scale and you know just simply using my waters I do feel like autumn next year is 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 probably where we're headed I can see some incentives for spring but I think the Conservatives and Sunak have a plan they want inflation to come down and they want to be able to fight the election on issues which aren't cost of living and things like perhaps immigration and cultural ground where they feel a little bit more solid whereas if it's about cost of living I think at the minute the the public are quite clear they don't think the Conservatives have the answer to that so the longer they can leave it I think it makes the most sense for them Okay the Labour Party are 20 points ahead in the polling if you sort of average them out Um, how joyful or nervous should the party be about that as you said that Mm. there's quite a bit of caution Um, Mm. should they be cautious? I think I think caution is right for two reasons. One, let's be clear, what Labour, Party, what Labour Party need to do to win the next election is nothing short of an electoral miracle. They have to overturn majorities in some constituencies in, in the Midlands and the South, the old bellwethers of English politics, where they haven't been competitive in since 2005. Conservatives have majorities of 20, 25, 30, 35% in some of those constituencies. And we're asking what we're, we're sort of expecting or thinking about Labour overturning those seats in order to build a majority. So they have a huge amount of work to do. Then in terms of where the national polling is. 20 point lead is very good but it's not quite where Blair was at this same stage of electoral cycle we saw Ed Miliband posting up some hugely significant leads ahead of that 2015 election only to go on and lose it so I think if you're the Labour Party and thinking ahead to, you know, does this mean we're ne- winning the next general election? Well it absolutely doesn't necessarily mean that so perhaps caution is quite well advised in, in, in that frame. Part of the point of these um, conferences is to take them outside of the South East, outside of London and the Westminster bubble, right? It's to bring them to Manchester, to Liverpool, the other big cities in the UK. So thinking about the nations and regions, I mean, I'm looking at a British flag now. Both parties mm. featured that heavily, you know, the state of the union, the UK made up of four separate nations. Mm. The Labour Party came into this with a big win over mm. the Scottish National Party in Scotland. How important is Scotland and the other nations and regions going to be? Yeah, I think absolutely it's going to be very important. I think Labour are looking very good right now in Wales, so they'll be confident there. And in terms of Scotland, well, particularly if Labour aren't quite knocking over as many older bellwethers and marginals in the South and the Midlands as they need to be, it could be that Scotland gives them their path to the majority. And in that sense, the polling that we released just a couple of days ago showing just a a one-point lead there in terms of Westminster vote intention and the Rutherglen result should give Labour a lot of confidence that they are on the right track in terms of Scottish politics. But look, the SNP are formidably... Mm. good at bouncing back and they have a real 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 good grip on very large sects of the electorate in Scotland so it's going to be a big task to do a huge amount of work there but certainly looks like from the polling and the elections that Labour are on track to do something in Scotland. So that was Patrick English, the YouGov Associate Director. He's actually head of all of polling for UK politics at YouGov. Uh, So he's a really interesting voice to have on. James, we've been to two big party conferences. We didn't get to the SNP and the Lib Dem conference, but we did do Tory and Labour. Your reflections then? I mean, do we think that it actually is the last party conference season ahead of the next general election? Uh, One fellow journalist warned me it might not be. I think uh, it depends if you're if you're Rishi Sunak. It all depends on the economy, even if you don't necessarily want to say it yet. Whereas Keir Starmer is very clear, this next election is about the economy. That is what it's going to be forced on. If you're fighting on 
economics. The later you leave it seems to be the best. I mean, I turn to Lizzie for a view on that. I but. think you're on a knife edge because you could leave it a longer time, leave it till the autumn next year and hope that inflation's come down more, that growth's in a better state. But if you leave it too long, then more people will have had to remortgage onto higher interest rates. So that gives a reason to go for May. And there's also the surprise factor. But Keir Starmer saying he's prepared for that surprise. And the question then being is, is the poll lead as strong as it really appears? I mean, this is what Patrick English mentioned quite briefly. This idea of it's 20 points now, but that's in a by-election. Is it going to be a low turnout election, especially with sort of older conservative voters feeling let down by the party not showing up? Or as Labour start to unveil more of their policy, if they Mm. indeed do in the head of an election, is that going to incentivise voters to come out against or for them? Uh, I think age is a very important one. And um, again, the pollsters say that this is going to be a very different election, very different to the referendum, very different to how we had been seeing the electorate in the UK as very much either pro or anti-Brexit. And those were the sort of camps. Now it's much more potentially about demographics, about where you are in the country. There's been a thinking of the uh, boundaries of constituencies in the UK look there are there are pitfalls aren't there Labour's top team has been very disciplined can they maintain that the unions are focused on winning at the minute but they've got really huge demands for the Labour Party on behalf of workers and the economy as you say if the economy brightens does that then weaken Labour's argument that there could be pitfalls ahead I think you're totally right on the geography point as well because Labour's got such a harder job given that they're support is concentrated in the cities I think it's we did the numbers our, our data nerd Eamon Farhat who's been here talking to the unions uh, crunched the numbers the, the, the Labour Party's got to do twice the job uh, as Tony Blair uh, to get from the low More point than twice the job yeah low point that Jeremy Corbyn left the party in after the 2019 election uh, to get a majority in what, whenever we get the next election whether it's 2024 or 2025 that's it from us for today we'll leave it on that thought shall we if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by james wilcock also our guest star and our audio engineers were marufal hussein and max green i'm lizzie burden and i'm caroline hepke we'll be back with more tomorrow this is bloomberg bloomberg uk politics listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.